0: the Seleucids, the largest and most diverse empire of the Hellenistic world and yet so underappreciated and overlooked. What do we know about this empire and why do we know so little? Hello, this is Anya Leonard, founder and director of Classical Wisdom. You are listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. Today I'm speaking with Derek L., the host and creator of the Hellenistic Age podcast about this vast and vastly overlooked period of history. Now, if you find the rise and fall of empires fascinating, then we do have some very exciting news. We have officially launched tickets to Classical Wisdom Symposium 2021, The End of Empires and the Fall of Nations, taking place this August 21 and 22. We're thrilled to have an amazing lineup of some of the most brilliant minds to discuss history, philosophy, and mythology. Join Neil Ferguson, Edith Hall, Donald Robertson, Paul Cartledge, just to name a few. And make sure you can secure your tickets at classicalwisdom.com slash symposium. Best of all, we want to make sure anyone and everyone can join us for this star-studded event. If you can't afford the ticket price, just email us at info and we'll help you out. Now, time to explore a fascinating, extensive, and multicultural corner of the ancient world, the Secludian Empire. Like Seleucids. So now, Seleucids, that just, I think most people hear that word and they don't really know anything about it, and um, it's, it's an empire, so why don't you maybe help us out by giving us a brief overview of this empire, and uh, what was its impact, and, and where, what's, the, what's its TLDR to begin with?
1: So we have to start with the time of Alexander the Great, and more specifically, the, the final days of his life. Um, Alexander the Great, uh, the Macedonian king who conquered the Persian empire from in a 10-year campaign uh, stretching from Greece to India, uh, had died in 323 BC in June in Babylon. And uh, the problem was is that uh, his, he had no immediate successor to the throne. And so the the only people that were left behind were a a brother who was either intellectually or disabled to some degree and a son who was still, who was either, it was just a newborn or he was already, uh, he was in this, he was still, uh, uh, his mother was, his mother Roxanne was still pregnant with him. Now, Immediately, the empire almost descended into a series of civil wars that lasted for 40 years, uh, contested over by Alexander's generals, often known as the successors. Uh, The main ones of these that kind of came out on top were the Antigone dynasty, who resided in Macedon, which is northern Greece, Uh, the Ptolemies, who controlled much of Egypt and parts of Libya and a little bit of southern Syria and Lebanon, and then lastly the seleucids kind of our main focus here now the seleucus uh, seleucus uh, the 1st the first member of the dynasty we'll call it uh, was a kind of a lesser known figure of alexander's uh, time he was a subordinate general and kind of was a background character he wasn't really too involved in the narrative uh, he was he pops up here and there, and eventually he is given control as the satrap or governor of Babylon or in, in uh, modern Mesopotamia or in Mesopotamia. Uh, from there, Seleucus kind of gradually grew in power and prestige. And eventually uh, he uh, started taking part as a major player within the wars of Alexander's empire. Eventually, uh, Seleucus you know, battles the Antigonid rivals and then eventually comes to terms with them. He at this point controls much of Mesopotamia and parts of the Iranian plateau, and you know from that point on, his dynasty, which lasts from the beginning of the approximately 312 BC until around the 70s, 60s BC. Uh, I don't know my specific dates on that one, so you have to excuse me. But uh, they control as far as the Balkans and modern Thrace, or in ancient Thrace, all the way to the shore or the edges of the Hindu Kush and in India and parts of upper northern uh, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan. Uh, that's the broad extent. And then to the southeast or southwest, excuse me, would be uh, Syria. Now the Seleucid Empire uh, generally is this a huge, huge entity. And they were, in fact, they were the largest of the main successors to Alexander's empire. And if, you know, if you're looking for kind of like a, a narrative that would be like somebody that maybe most people would know the Seleucids from, you would either know them from their conflicts with uh, Rome through the wars of Antiochus the Third. Alternatively, uh, the Wars of the Maccabees and the Book of Maccabees, books one and two of Maccabees from the Bible, uh, that's spec- especially uh, referring to the rebellion of Jerusalem and Judeans or at least some faction of Judean uh, subjects from King Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanies, And that's kind of a subject we'll definitely talk about in a little bit. But the Seleucid Empire is just this large ethnic entity of, you know, although it's ruled by Greeks, mainly uh, Greco Macedonian rulers, they controlled a, a huge diversity of populations ranging from you know babylonians to Arama- aramaic speakers of all varieties uh jews Ir- iranians steppe peoples uh, as far as modern afghanistan like i mentioned And it was a challenge to maintain it. Now, there's always been a discussion as to whether the Seleucids were, you know, a a kind of this like lump, this, you know, lumbering giant that broke easily at the touch because there was a, you have kind of high points and low points where the greatest extent of the empire was under Seleucus I. You have a couple, you know, decades of relative peace, but then uh, interdynastic strife and civil war and wars with other rivals kind of sapped the empire's ability to maintain itself. And so parts broke off where you have the rivals of uh, steppe nomads like the Parthians into, Iran- into Iranian territory. Uh, you have the break off from Bactria, which who became their own little interesting niche known as the Greco-Bactrians and then later on the Indo-Greeks. Uh, and then you have parts in Asia Minor, modern Turkey, who kind of were forming these independent dynasts. So the entire story of the Seleucids is this, almost this attempt to maintain the status quo most of the time it was rather successful, other times not so much. And when after the defeat of Antiochus in approximately uh, the mid-180s BC by the Roman Republic, uh, the empire kind of retained a static point within Syria, which we'll also we'll, we'll discuss in a little bit inevitably because Syria is a major part about all of this. Um, in terms of impacts, like I said, Book of Maccabees is a huge one that's influential in terms of the foundation of the Jewish state, in terms of the kingdom of Jude- Jerusalem, um, not the medieval Jerusalem, but certainly uh, the times of like John Hyrcanus, and then later Herod would be the inheritor of these kingdoms. And uh, essentially, this kind of formed a bedrock where the Seleucids kind of transformed certain areas of the empire that they had formerly ruled over. And they became extremely prosperous in some regions and then other regions kind of fell apart but they formed the template model for later empires like the Parthians for instance and then the romans who moved into their uh, the seleucids western territories and uh, essentially they're this really fascinating but hardly documented group because there's almost no real uh strict source work that we can find on them that we have for those like rome or in central greece or even the hellenistic period has its own problems in terms of source work but the the Seleucids i find are are kind of the the, the least documented of all of them, and I think that's kind of a shame. And I hope to kind of elucidate more a bit about it.
0: Yeah, no, it's really interesting because uh, you know when you're talking about the the different empires after Alexander the Great, I think most people know about the Ptolemies the most, and obviously they have uh, plenty of star characters there that that kind of have that star quality that draw in the, the crowd, so to speak. Um, and the Seleucids, you just they there's even though they're so large and diverse and, and so fascinating. They're just less talked about. And I mean, is that just because there's less information about them?
1: I think that's probably the main contributing factor. I mean, there, there's in terms of source work, uh, we have brief bits from authors like Appian, who dedicates an entire uh, book of his Roman history to discussing the Seleucids, although it's a very brief and like kind of uh, general um It's just, it's just a, it's a cursory glance at Seleucid history. There's also the uh, history. There's also Babylonian and Aramaic documents recovered, like such as the Babylonian Chronicles, which are written in uh, cuneiform, Akkadian. That kind of give us brief indications of what rule was Seleucid rule was like in Babylonia, and it was written at the time. So that's like the only contemporaneous evidence we have of Seleucid rule. Uh, there is also, uh, more famously, we have the, uh, the preservation of Seleucid history from the authors of the Jewish tradition. So uh, the main ones are Josephus, a the Roman historian, uh, the, the, the Jewish Romano historian of the first century AD under the Flavian emperors. Uh, in his Jewish, in his Antiquities of the Jews, he discusses the Seleucid rule to some extent, uh, often referring to them as the kings of the north. Um, he dedicates also to discussion about the Maccabean revolt. And uh, generally with the Seleucid or the Jewish perspective of the Seleucids, it's a bit more hostile, Uh, especially this can be seen with uh, the book of Maccabees. Now, um, from memory fails me of which Maccabees book it is that's particularly hostile. I believe book two of Maccabees is the author because they're written at different time periods and the authors are clearly... Uh, slanted in different directions, but they are incredibly hostile, where they refer to Antiochus IV Epiphanes, which means godlike, as Antiochus IV Epimenes, the mad. Uh, they view the Seleucids as almost like a suppressor who's trying to root out Judaism by forcing uh, Hellenization and conversion, and there is some degree of truth to that, but it's a bit more complicated. And uh, the Maccabean revolt is kind of this uh, little nebulous of, uh, you know, it's rooted in that Jewish religious history that's so powerful in the modern, in, in terms of religious landscapes of today, whereas there's probably a bit more nuance to it. But still, that if that's if that's one of our major sources, is a very hostile one like them. Uh, Polybius of Megalopolis, a Greek historian of the second uh, century BC, is Considered often the best historian of the Hellenistic period, if not among the best historians in ancient world, yeah. uh, they, he talks about a little bit. Unfortunately, we have very few bits from from, uh, from uh, Polybius. We have tantalizing bits, though. Uh, he talks about the reign of Atticus the uh, third, who was often considered the greatest of the Hellen- of the Seleucid kings after Seleucus the first himself, and. Uh, We are missing pieces where Antiochus makes his journey into uh, Central Asia and India and beyond, but we do have his wars against Ptolemy the Fourth and Arsinoe. Excuse me and. uh and, uh, his, and Ptolemy's uh, forces in Egypt. And then you have eventually his uh, ultimate defeat by Rome before he dies unceremoniously in his temple sack. So again, we just don't have the source work that we like to. And then even then, most of the sources kind of portray the Seleucids as almost this sort of other or, or downright hostile. So it does take a lot of work to try to even piece together a chronology of Seleucid sources never mind actually getting like characterization of its main kings of figuring out who did what and we do have to rely a lot of like contemporary evidence from Babylonia for instance and uh it's it's a challenge to be sure compared to like the Ptolemies and the Antigonids and even and especially in Rome in this circumstance
0: yeah you know it's really funny because usually you say you know history is written by the victors but it sounds like in this case history was written by the oppressed uh, and so that it must be kind of a rare incidence where you have uh, the, the people underneath the empire who who recorded it rather than those in power.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, Polybius, that's that gets like some point. I kind of bring that up with Polybius, for instance, who was to put it in context, Polybius was a member of a Greek league, that event that kind of clashed with Rome. And eventually, they were defeated, and then Polybius was taken as a political prisoner of the Roman Republic. And so, there are questions as to whether or not uh, Polybius may have fluffed up the Romans in comparison to the Seleucids, uh, because you know the Romans were his now his benefactors. Uh, but with with those like the Maccabee authors, you know clearly they're they're writing this in uh, in post post the after the events, and you know. It, to, Depicting it as either hardcore like pro Jewish beliefs, as you're triumphing over the foreign oppressors of the Greeks who are trying to, uh, you know, convert force us to convert to uh, paganism. It, there are there are try- It's trying to find that balancing act between how much can we take as you know at face value, how much do we have to interpret, and that is kind of true with all ancient sources, which I think is what makes it so fascinating. But I think that the Seleucids in particular, I mean, the Ptolemies have their own issues, you know, in terms of their perception by ancient authors as slovenly, debaucherous, and uh, just general corrupt. The Seleucid empire, Emperor uh, Seleucid kings kind of come out a little bit better in terms of the characterization, but we still have to deal with that lack of sources. And what we have is just so poor in general that it just takes a lot of effort and by scholars to try to reconstruct anything.
0: Yeah, and I guess it's, it's interesting because you have such a diverse empire that the relationship between the kings and queens and their people must be very different, depending on the region, because obviously they would have different interactions with the Jews versus the Bactrian Greeks or whatnot. That 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 isn't a consistent uh, relationship, whether they're good or bad.
1: Yeah, the salute. I mean, that's one of the things about um, the question with Hellenist with Hellenization and the Hellenistic period is, you know, how much can we describe uh, these gr- essentially largely Greek overlords over an indigenous population that greatly outnumber them and there are often you know comparisons between that and um, colonial empires of the last few centuries often unfavorably so mm-hmm. um it's a little bit more nuanced where it isn't uh i won't think that uh, it's essentially just uh greek kings spreading greek culture and you know uplifting the land but it's also not them just uh partially t- adopting these traits of these uh of, of these peoples to kind of just placate them. Uh, the Seleucids in general, they actually had quite a few, uh, they have a, quite a few instances that we can suggest or suggestions that they actually were. Well, uh, uh, well, approaching the uh, peoples that they ruled over. Now, let me kind of get backtrack a bit. So, you know, when the the ruling is um, an empire as huge as it was, they had to contend with a lot of different uh, precedents and uh, different cultures. Like I said, Babylonians, uh, Iranians, like the Persians, uh, steppe peoples, and they had to kind of come to terms with those people. While also trying to maintain their power base, as which is largely based on Greco-Macedonians and you know, proponents of Greek culture, um, you know Seleucid kings, for instance, kind of styling themselves, uh, they were able to adopt the roles and functions of essentially like Near Eastern rulers. They would do practices that would be befitting of Neo-Babylonian kings and Assyrian kings. One of the, the Seleucids adopted uh, as their patron deity Apollo. Now, Apollo oftentimes is portrayed as kind of a seated archer, and, and those who are familiar with Greek mythology kind of get that understanding. However, uh, it is there's possible there's actually an excellent article about this, but from Kyle L. Erickson, uh, talking about the connections between Apollo and uh, Iranian gods and the iconography of such, where it could be portrayed as a uh, Iranian form of kingship. Uh, imagery where the kings are always portrayed as like archers and they're always you know astride. and uh, and then there's also connection between you know Apollo and native Iranian gods like Nabu, and there is, I mean, it's not a, it's not outlandish considering that, uh, for instance, the second Seleucus king Antiochus the uh, first, his father Seleucus was married to an Iranian princess. Uh, was the only actually Iranian, uh, the only uh, Macedonian under Alexander who they were all a lot of them were married to Iranian wives, and then Seleucus was the only one who kept his wife uh, Apama or Apame, depending on your pronunciation. And uh, it's very likely that he learned some form of Iranian and kind of was appealing to those uh, Iranian language, Iranian peoples across Central Asia, Um, and then when you kind of compare those two, the, there's there's a lot of these roles where they just adopt these religious customs, and later on, in Seleucid rule, as they kind of were settled into Syria, they started appealing to the Syriac populations by putting uh, local gods, like uh, you know your your Canaanite gods. Um, I'm trying to think of the exact name of them, but they're uh, but they have they have this flexibility where they are more than willing to kind of present themselves and play the part that, like I said, the Babylonian Chronicles re- describe them as such. However, uh, they were first and foremost, in my opinion, Greco-Macedonian kings in the style of Alexander. They ruled from horseback; the empire was from horseback, which is not uncommon for ancient societies. But they were all Greek speakers. They there's a large their ministry of class spoke Greek. They promoted Greek cities or Greek styled cities. Uh, they always were described in sources as Macedonian kings, and we're not going to get into the whole discussion between our Macedonian Greeks. That's like a whole other. That's just mm-hmm. I'm going to dodge we'll that question that. here. There, we'll say that yes, they are Greek. Okay, how about that? But uh, they uh, they were portrayed, perceived by uh, other sources as being Greek, and even by their own subjects who were, viewed them as Greeks in general. So you have this interesting dynamic where they are more than willing to adopt and to take on these roles and it probably was to a certain extent uh, totally they like, totally uh enthusiastic about it and wasn't just like a face value a facade just to kind of keep control of the plebs they probably did throw themselves into those roles and it kind of shows how flexible they were i mean they maintained a huge empire for almost 300 years which is pretty impressive considering the the scale and diversity and uh, the general kind of a lack of a local power base that they had but in my opinion, they were unquestionably Greco-Macedonian origin, but still capable of this flexibility.
0: Yeah, no, it's interesting because I would say that, that the Ptolemies did that as well, right? I mean, like not all of them, but I know that like, Cleopatra learned Egyptian and was also replicated local Egyptian gods in her like iconography and things like that. So I, I wonder if it was a kind of a more universal tactic among that time period, or is is it is that sort of more uniquely to the Suclids and the Ptolemies to sort of integrate the local cultures into their rule.
1: I think it was, I think it's kind of inevitable with any sort of, uh, you know the the nature of the empires themselves were derived from military conquest. But when you have a a disproportionately small ruling class largely of Greeks and Greco-Macedonians and whatever combination of in between, where you have, you know, indigenous Egyptians, for instance, in the Ptolemies' case, you have to come to terms with some extent to even try to, uh, you know, maintain your compo- your maintain your control. Now, of course, you always backed it up with the threat of the spear, but it's still you couldn't just have it where, you know, I'm, you're just enforcing a Greek. Perspective on the landscape, you had there had to be some give and take, and especially since uh, Hellenistic kingship was largely transactional in the sense that they weren't, you know, despots and god kings that they ruled without question. They had to kind of contend with the local power bases that oftentimes were these native inhabitants. Where you had Iranian overlords in parts of Central Asia, you had. Uh, the Egyptian priestly class, in the case of the Ptolemies, there had to be some sort of mutual understanding between the two, which kind of allowed these uh, Greek rulers to kind of maintain their control. And, you know, you always have, to. there's always a the question, you know, were they genuine in this adoption of these cultures? And I think to some extent, they were. And I think that that's part of it. But I think there's also a sort of a pragmatism in towards if they had to do this, otherwise, they probably would not have succeeded as long as they did.
0: Yeah, I mean the Romans obviously did that as well, and I mean, hey, I'm a perennial expat, so I know that just naturally when you're living in various countries, you just kind of automatically find yourself mimicking or integrating, and, and you know, to to find people who never interact with the local culture, it's like almost impossible, even just like as even as an individual scale in a modern situation. that our human nature, I think, is, is such that we do want to be a part of the community that we're in, even if it is very different from where we originally came from.
1: I mean, it was the expression when in Rome do as the Romans do, but I guess in this case, <laughs> when in Babylon do the Babylonians and having many faces is, is a key component to maintaining such a, a large and diverse empire as the Seleucids.
0: So when we're trying to understand the Seleucid kings, do you think it's best to see them through that Macedonian Greek or the Near Eastern or the Iranian lens? Like, how are we to best understand these these this empire?
1: I think that you need to see them through all lenses. I mean, it just it's it's also a kind of a consequence of the nature of our source work. Where um, you know there's a one of the books I've you know that I highly recommend for people is uh, you know from Samarkand to Sardis by Susan Sherwin White and Amelia Kurtz, where they talk about how you have to almost view the Seleucids. Uh, 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 provincially where you can't just view them as kind of this universal perspective like you have to go from the end like to see how they treated each region of their empire differently the babylonians weren't always the mesopotamia was not treated the same as it was in north syria which was not treated the same as in asia minor and you have to kind of understand where how they approached these locations and cultures, and what they were able to do with it, and Babylon, where you have this entrenched, uh, you know, pers- perspective on how kings were, kingship, and monarchies, and religious practices, you can't just take over and not try to. Cope with that, not or not cope necessarily, but try to uh, find some middle ground where you have a the Seleucid rules trying to perform the functions of this. Whereas in North Syria, they are very much it's a Seleucid dynastic stamp. It's almost entirely based around the Seleucid ideology, and there's almost no sort of precedence that the Seleucids need to base their uh, rule upon. Which is probably why they're, they they originally their imperial capital was in Babylonia, but that was moved to North Syria eventually. Given that like they were just able to make it their own personal kingdom and they were able to rule as such, which I think was what they ultimately wanted, but they still wanted to make sure that their other parts of the empire were happy.
0: So you mentioned Sukud ideology. Um, can you maybe explain what that included? Because that, uh, that might give us a better idea of who this empire was.
1: They mitigated power by giving it to local, we'll call them local power holders to kind of borrow another scholar's term. Uh, What that means essentially is that they had to kind of come to terms with local dynasts or warlords and essentially gave them a certain degree of autonomy and control, which allowed them to kind of have a degree of uh, prestige, such as, you know, minting coins in their own name, kind of styling themselves, at least the imagery of themselves as monarchs. But in reality, they were serving the Seleucid interests because, the reason why that is, is because the Seleucids were by and large preoccupied with affairs on their Western front. Um, and that would be specifically referring to the Ptolemies who were kind of their main rival, but also often on the Antigonids as well in Macedonia. Um, the only way that the Seleucids could mitigate this is by operating with a, we'll call it a peripatetic government. Essentially, the Seleucids were always on campaign, but that doesn't really mean that they were always like On the march for war, even though a a ridiculous number of the Seleucid uh, kings, especially the first fourteen, died in military engagements or while on military campaigns, uh, they were always marching and moving along the empire through their through uh, to city to city, uh, passing through the countryside. And this kind of did a couple different things. One, it's kind of ease the burden of hosting, I guess, a a specific capital and trying to deal with the different threats on the front of the empire. Now, uh, Syria was essentially its main capital, but there was no main capital city, we'll call it. There were multiple capitals depending on the region. Uh, Sardis in Asia Minor, for instance, uh, you had a couple of couple of the major cities like Antioch and Seleucia and the Piraea, and then you had Seleucia on the Tigris and Mesopotamia and so on and so forth. Uh, They would move through these regions to kind of make their imperial presence known and felt. They would be dealing with direct delegations from cities and from representatives of cities because they would be ultimately kind of this, the locus of power that would move across the empire to try to to, uh, make sure that their presence was felt. Otherwise, uh, you had instances where satraps would revolt uh empire different uh native inhabitants would go into rebellion and it was kind of a juggling act they had to really figure out a way to constantly be on the move while also dealing with threats on their front thro- fronts and now uh the most of the time they were moving up and down uh the levantine coast and into asia minor and it's very rare that they actually entered into their eastern satrapies which would be you know bactria and uh parts of that area but uh and that's and there's possibly that's possibly led to the reason why the Seleucid empire kind of fell off in the eastern provinces. Uh they were actually pretty successful at this. Uh there's it was almost ceremonial in aspect. Uh, we have a recording from Josephus that kind of indicates how the uh it would, when they entered the city it would be this very elaborate affair where uh it would you know the act of opening the gates in the first place was uh, a, a sign of submission, but uh, the, the priests of Jerusalem would come out and chant with torches as the Kings would march into the city. They would play host, but then given the enormous size of the Seleucid army and the cost of feeding this host, they would move on at their own terms. So this allowed, uh, these regions to kind of get a breather and not be overburdened by the Seleucid presence. And uh, that's, the, that's probably the most unique aspect or one, one of the most unique aspect when compared to their other Hellenistic monarchs, where the Ptolemies were pretty consistently based in Alexandria off the Nile Delta. The, the, the Antigonids did not have as large of control. Uh, they were just based largely in Macedonia and they had their own capital cities. But the Seleucids, to kind of compensate for that huge administrative and logistical nightmare that was their empire, they really had to find a way to deal with it. And, I, and uh, this constant movement was just one of those ways.
0: Wow, it's amazing to just imagine like the army coming in. They must have been terrified when this rolling giant army came to town. That'd be probably a good way of keeping them in check. Just reminding them, hey, this is what we've got coming for you if you try to rebel. Um, I, I, wa- I was wondering, though, with this sort of huge patchwork of different peoples and cultures uh, underneath this one empire, did was there internal fighting between the different groups or because they had... Kind of an oppressor, and I'm using bunny ears when saying that that uh, they would they were united <laughs> against a common enemy, or, or did, was there always kind of bubblings between neighbors?
1: You know, that's a good question. Um, in terms of any standout examples, uh, there was not really, I guess, a, a, a concentrated effort from different parts of the empire to rebel against. Um, the Seleucids altogether, it would be individual regions, oftentimes you know, propped up by a particular lord or a power base that who wanted to kind of assert control for themselves. In, in general, though, there are uh, instances of. Uh, actually, the a lot of the uh, native inhabitants actually working with the Seleucids where, you know, starting out with Seleucus I, um, you know, looking at the sources, it looks like he was actually at least when compared to other uh, of the Greek Macedonian, uh, Greco-Macedonian uh, governors or satraps under Alexander's time, Seleucus seems to be relatively well liked by the Babylonian populace and uh, actually uh, quite, probably the vast majority of Seleucus's forces were Iranian in origin uh, rather than Greco-Macedonian. So there must have been this at least degree of cooperation and uh, mutual understanding between the two groups where they found that Seleucus, when compared to, you know, say like Antigonus Monophthalmos, who uh, almost raised Babylon to the ground, um, he found the Seleucids to be particularly, uh, particularly uh, you know, not necessarily kind, but certainly tolerable rather than, you know, finding some sort of uh, nationalistic fervor. Uh, You don't, you do have rebellions popping up here and there, but that's kind of the extent with any sort of empire, especially during transitory periods, such as Kings dying, where you have power, power claimants or people trying to stake out their own. And the Seleucids were pretty flexible at giving a degree of autonomy to their subjects when compared to somebody that's more bureaucratic, like the Ptolemies, but, you know, they seem to be relatively, um, peaceful or best relatively stable in uh, the mass majority of the Seleucid's problems comes from civil wars. Well, let's, let's put that mildly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can imagine that there's a, the, the people would be just sort of used to having various Kings in charge. And I wonder, uh, and I've, I've discussed this before too, with, with regards to Alexander, the Great's empire is, you know, if you have such a large empire and a time and place in which, you know, you're not you, like you said, you're the fastest way you can travel is by horseback. How much impact really does the individual kings have in this sort of vast territory? I mean, maybe they come to town and everybody like sharpens up, but for the m- vast majority of the time, people probably live their lives kind of as they used to.
1: Yeah, the uh, it's interesting when you. I try to always see the uh, common person's perspective in the wake of like the narrative of like great battles and kings, and you always have to try to take their perspective as like you know. Oftentimes, you find where it's just like you know, whoever you know, I'm paying taxes to somebody, whether it's uh, you know this Greek king or it's somebody else, and that's oftentimes what you find the majority of the situation with peasants. They're kind of like. They just want to live their lives in relative peace and quiet and whoever is maintaining that is fine by them. Um, there are instances where, you know, especially with the Ptolemies where they had a 30 uh, year long uh, rebellion by native Egyptian subjects that there are indications that this is always wasn't the case. Uh, however, um, there actually is quite a, a bit of interesting information because we do have quite a few bits and pieces of uh, what the average person thought necessarily. Um, so whether they were, uh, you know, for example, uh, we have records from Babylonian texts or cuneiform texts from Babylonia that kind of piece together what life was like uh, the initial period of uh, Seleucus's rule and during the wars of the successors of Alexander was quite uh, destructive. Uh, Babylon, the Babylonian Chronicles kind of just talk about how the price of wheat was skyrocketed and people were starving. And there was, I think the exact lines were quote, and there was weeping and mourning through the land. Which is pretty uh, visceral, and how it describes the average—you can only imagine what the average common person was. Um, but you do have kind of bits and pieces here, where, uh, for example, because uh, Alexander and his also his successors kind of populated these regions with Greco-Macedonian settlers to kind of form the military class, of sorts. Uh, you do find instances of Greeks living among um, Babylonians. Uh, the for instance, um, you have uh, you know, there, for example, kind of. I'm guessing we'll talk about this later is like, uh, for example, the, the Seleucid city of Seleucia on the Tigris, which is uh, a little bit North of Babylonia kind of became the new center of power for Mes- Mesopotamia for centuries. Um, but Babylonia, you had, uh, Seleucia or Seleu-Ki, rather was very much a Greek city. Although there are definite Babylonian elements where you have populations that, uh, you know, they, they clearly indulge in Babylonian art styles and religious religions Um, but they are predominantly Greek, but then you also have Greeks living in, in ancient cities like Uruk, where you have, uh, these Macedonian settlers that are, are, you know, living among as shepherds or living in the population, probably intermarrying with the local population to some extent. Uh, there were, there were not that many Greek women that went along with Alexander's campaign. So, uh, you had to kind of find your own wives in these regions, which was almost inevitable. Um, but, uh, it, you do have this uh, general perception of just life kind of goes on, and I think that's kind of true with a lot of different empires, barring the initial conquests where this mass suffering and despotism, or not despotism, but just just suffering inflicted due to the nature of warfare. Um, you just don't find, and we, we just don't have as much in terms of daily life as we'd like to, but, uh, it seems to be relatively quiet. We just have the perspective of the upper echelon in this case, which is a little bit unfortunate, but you know, you got to have to take what you can get.
0: Yeah. I mean, and that's the reality with most of ancient history that, um, that the agrarian history is just a little less overlooked. And it's kind of interesting that now they're sort of delving into that a bit more than they used to.
1: Yeah, I think uh, with the, especially with the uh, the agrarian population, it's almost like, I mean, actually with you know, one of the big discussions of the Hellenistic period is, you know, or was one of the talked about angles is the idea of urbanization, where um, with hellenistic rulers like kind of one of the big things you know alexander the great is famous for naming multiple cities after himself. uh i think the number of like 70 that plutarch gives is a little high and it's a little bit uh, generous to think of them as entirely like full blood full-grown cities but uh the seleucids in particular were a society that heavily sponsored not necessarily urbanization but definitely city founding um First, the first major region of this was in Mesopotamia. Uh, Like I mentioned, Seleucus had in about uh, Seleucus I had, you know, kind of resided in Babylonia, Babylon as his first administrative capital, but he had built the city of Seleucia on the Tigris uh, north of them. Now, most of the major cities were on the Euphrates prior to this um, in Babylonian terms, but uh, Seleucus had reoriented the political landscape from the Euphrates up to the Tigris. And Seleucia was enormous by any comparison. We don't have much of the evidence. We do know of the plan of the general layout of the city. Uh, it was extremely large. Uh, I think uh, at one point Pliny the Elder says that it had up to five hundred thousand people, which at least, wow. and that's rivaling you know Rome at its time and also uh, the city of Alexandria, which is in Egypt, which is often seen as the greatest Hellenistic city of the time, um, and. And actually kind of to kind of give it a perspective on this. Then their reorientation of the Seleucia on the Tigris kind of formed the template for the later empires that would be established in Iraq, where uh, the Parthians, who kind of were the eastern successors of the Seleucids, founded their city of Ctesiphon right next to Seleucia on the Tigris, almost as a twin city. And Seleucia continued to be served as administrative capital, where Pliny describes in the second century, almost first century AD, where they were still retaining their Greek and Macedonian customs centuries after Seleucid rule had faltered. Um, and then later on even later than the Seleuc- than the Parthians would be the Abbasid caliphate in the uh, mid to late 800s where they would establish baghdad one of the greatest cities in world history in adjacent to Seleucia on the tigris um, but the other major region of Seleucid settlement and uh, urbanization would take place in north Syria. now uh, prior to Seleucid rule the region was largely uh unin- it was it was inhabited but there was no real uh urban landscape to call that uh the persians only had a few city maybe a few settlements there here and there and there were local uh syriac populations but uh one of the seleucus uh, one of the alexander's successors antigonus monophthalmos or antigonus the one-eyed who was the founder member of the Antigonid dynasty that later ruled in macedonia for a time kind of controlled north syria and began to plant cities bearing his name however when seleucus won control of syria following the battle of ipsus in 301 They began to transform North Syria into the urban and imperial, uh, like a centerpiece of the empire. Syria became heavily urbanized and densely populated. And uh, from approximately the end of the fourth century to the beginning of the second century, the population went from maybe half a million to well over two and a half million um the major cities that formed kind of were, they're were often described as the tetropolis you have your famous ones like Antio- antioch or antioch on the orontes but known as the antioch uh you have so and piraea you have uh, see, there's antioch by, uh, not antioch by daphne that's also another name for Antio- antioch uh, antioch on the orontes but there were several cities that kind of formed as this major urban locus of the empire, and they all bore dynastic names. And one of the interesting things about it is that they also were the only places in the entire empire that bore uh, settlements with Greek and Macedonian names. Now, what I mean by that is that they would they would often find there, uh, for example, a uh, a settlement called Larissa, which is also uh, named after the city in Thessalian Larissa in Greece. This is the only region in the entire empire that is like this, and it is very likely that that this was a conscious effort on part of the Seleucids to kind of reconstruct a new uh, Macedonian homeland for themselves after, since they were no longer in Macedonia, uh, they had to kind of construct a new dynastic uh, dynastic land, uh, homeland to call their own. And we can't really just call it like a, a transplanted Macedonia. In effect, it was Macedonia. There was the Orontes river was named also uh, after the river that runs by Pella once in a while. Um the Seleucid Piraea formed the funeral, uh, the the, uh, the mausoleum for the Seleucid dynasty, which kind of acted as like the ceremonial marker for this is the Seleucids' new homeland. They're being buried here, and uh, the region became was so uh, prosperous that it continued to be so under Roman rule and really only faltered about a thousand years after Seleucus the first settled first uh, after Seleucus the first had first settled his uh, armies or his uh, his populations and cities there when you have the late middle ages where you know after the the after the uh, Antioch is lost by Rome to Persia and then eventually is lost by Rome to the uh, the Umayyad Caliphate and uh, really only faltered until the high middle ages so that's pretty impressive in terms of uh, the Seleucids. It's a testament to how much dedication and how well planned these regions were and how they were able to transform the landscape that was relatively uninhabited to almost a Greek Macedonian transplant, but we're still retaining this imperial and highly urbanized and planned settlement region. And there are, you know, you can't break a few eggs without making some, you can't make an almond without breaking a few eggs. And there was probably some considerable strife that this caused, but for the most part, it was an incredible, incredible uh, feat in terms of urbanization and planning and uh, one of the major political and economic legacies of the Seleucids.
0: So um, it's almost like a magna gracia over again, but uh, a couple hundred years later, uh, much much later. Um, So would you say... What is the sort of like the lasting impact then of the Cycloids? would you be able to sort of see their impact in these regions today? I mean, through this urbanization or is there more elements that is sort of a lasting artifacts of that time period?
1: You know, sadly, with uh, any when, may, most Seleucid cities, uh, barring a few exceptions like Antioch, uh, we just don't have as much physical evidence of them as we'd like. Um, however, there are a few kind of main contributing legacies towards the region. Uh, like I just mentioned, the urbanization of North Syria kind of f- made it a imperial hub for over a thousand years, well after the Seleucids had passed on. And the Romans would kind of, especially in the Seleucids Eastern or Western territories, the Seleucids would kind of move in and I'm sorry, the Seleucids, the Seleucids Western territories, the Romans would move in and kind of just insert themselves into the administrative seats that these, uh, that the empire had kind of already established. And Antioch became like the third major city of the empire after Rome and then maybe Alexandria. It may have also, it may have been second or third depending on the time. And that was one of the major things I kind of point out too with a lot of Hellenistic monarchies is that without their work in, in, uh, in the Eastern Ter- in, uh, in the Levant and Egypt and Asia Minor, you probably would not have, the Romans would not have had nearly as much success as they did. And it kind of shows because the locus of power for the Roman Empire moved to these heavily Hellenized provinces and that's where they continue to remain all the way down to 1453 and the, following the conquest of Constantinople by the Ottoman Empire. And that is in part the Seleucid efforts at kind of reconstructing the landscape to fit their needs. And that is a major, major uh, legacy behind them. Um, another one, a kind of an interesting one I find, is what is known as the Seleucid era. Now, uh, prior to the time of Seleucus, uh, there was, and, and even contemporary to them, there was not really a kind of a, 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 a conti- we'll call it almost a uh, progressive system of time measurement or chrono- chronology. I mean, you did have a few instances here and there where you had... Um the olympiads which is based on like you know every four years the olympic games would go on so at a certain point you reach the 170th Olympiad, which would be from approximately the mid 8th century down to whatever time that would be and in for example in greece and rome they would have uh the annual like they would describe events as in the year of the consul which is the kind of the roman magistrate or the year of the archon in athens which are yearly uh limits to power and yearly offices so it kind of formed as a convenience uh chronology chronological system. And in the Near East, though, you always had things described in terms of regnal years. So uh, in the third year of Ashurbanipal uh, or they would describe momentous events such as, you know, and the in the year of the dragon boats is one of the kind of one that stand out to me. Um, But when the Seleucids kind of came in, uh, one of the major changes they made was the introduction of the Seleucid era. Now, essentially, uh, what they did was they created a fixed point in the year 312-311. Yeah, d- it depends on, uh, you know, because the, it depends on the use of the Babylonian or the Macedonian calendar, which had different new years beginning and ending. But in the Babylonian case, it began in 312 in April. And the Seleuca rule essentially started, made 312-311 as year zero. Now, it basically start off as year zero and then each progressive year or so be uh in the first year of this in in year one, year two, and so on and so forth. So three ten be year one, three no nine would be year three, and so on and so forth. Um, but What they did, though, is now create a system that was uh, constantly progressing, regardless of the ruler who was in charge, regardless of how many years that king has reigned, there would always be kind of like a fixed static date. So, for instance, you know, 100 years down the line, it would be year 100 and then 200 years and so on and so forth. This continued to be widely used uh, throughout Central Asia and through the Near East and in effect, one, on one hand, uh, one of the reasons why it, was, why it ties into it is because the year zero kind of falls on the Babylonian New Year, which kind of acts as this like, reju- when. to put it in more context, uh, so when Seleucus was kicked out of Babylon by the Antigonids, he returned or at least timed himself as beginning in year 312 as his regnal or, or uh, you know, his regnal date where he assumed the title of king when in reality he took it you know, in 306 along with the other monarchs. But 312 acted as this great kind of like nebulous. Of, it lined up with Babylonian New Year. It lined up with his return to Babylon. And so it made him more legitimate in the eyes of his Babylonian subjects. But the idea of a Seleucid dating system like that kind of gives a sense of uh, cons- uh, consistency and a sense of uh, stability. Whereas you, you're, regardless of whoever's in charge, it's always the same Seleucid era. And that is like also another form of dynastic propaganda. You're always, you're naming your dates after the years of Seleucid rule. And uh, cities would, and once this was introduced, many cities kind of adopted their own variations. Uh, the Parthians would adopt the Parthian era once they began taking over. Um, certain other cities like the city of Arados, would kind of reject the Seleucid era, but then they would start their own version of it from year zero and same thing with Pergamon. But uh, perhaps what my people might not know is that this would actually lead to the creation of several modern calendar or modern uh, calendrical system or dating systems. For example, uh, the Christian Anno Domini, uh, the year of our Lord and the progressive forward for that, the Islamic Hajira. So, starting from the, I I, I don't know the exact specifics, I believe it's from Muhammad receiving his visions. then that's kind of what led to those crea- the creation of those particular systems. And honestly, actually, the Seleucid era system has been was used as far as the Middle Ages. Uh, we still find Syriac gravestones in as far as uh, eastern as western China uh, in approximately the region of Kazakhstan, where you have the Syriac religious, uh, these uh, Manichean, uh, not Manichean, excuse me, um, you have Christians in Kazakhstan and China from in the middle ages that still are using the the Seleucid era thousands of years after the last Seleucid king ruled in Syria. So I think that's an incredible, incredible concept. And it seems so mundane, but it just it's, a, it's such a fascinating way in how they perceive themselves and their empire. And again, I, if you're interested in the subject at all, I do recommend uh, to, uh, Time and its Adversaries in the Seleucid Empire by Paul Cosman, if you want to really go into the whole system. But I think that's one of the most interesting aspects of this empire. And I think that's what kind of elevates them in some perspective as to why I find them so interesting, because it's such an unorthodox way of approaching rule.
0: You know, I think maybe we're we're due for a new calendar, you know? I mean, if every different empire gets to rename them and stuff like that, maybe, maybe we should start renaming the calendar months and making them a bit more contemporary.
1: Well, I mean, as soon as aliens land and we make first contact, I think that's going to be the closest thing to it. <laughs> but uh, who knows if that's going to ever happen at this rate?
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so to shift the focus a little bit to yourself, um, you've been doing uh, a lot of work on the Hellenistic Age. Uh, And in fact, you have a podcast named The Hellenistic Age Podcast. Um, Can you maybe tell us why you specifically decided to delve into the Hellenistic era rather than any other time period in history?
1: Well, I've always found myself attracted to the ancient world in particular um, in comparison to, say, the medieval period, although I've kind of expanded my horizons into late antiquity. But, uh, you know, even as a kid, I always found ancient Rome fascinating, ancient Greece um, but then, uh, you know, I listen to podcasts like I'm, and I kind of make this as a, this a joke that every, every, almost every podcaster, is, you know, start, g- talks about Mike Duncan to some extent, or specifically ancient historian podcasters talk about Mike Duncan's uh, History of Rome was kind of a, a major inspiration in that regards. But uh, when I was trying to come up with an idea, like I just, it was almost spontaneous in how I thought, well, maybe I could try podcasting about a history subject. What would I talk about? And really at the time, Alexander the Great was the only one I could think of that was not really talked about, but still I could talk a lot about. Um, But then I thought, well, you know, that I can only do so many episodes on that. And that could really form as a nice template to like practice and learn. Um, What if I just do the entire Hellenistic period? Because the Hellenistic period I did, which I guess for people who are exactly too familiar that's approximately from the death of alexander the great in 323 bc until the death of cleopatra and the conquest of egypt by the roman republic and octavian augustus caesar in 30 bc and there are uh you know uh technicles regarding you know is that actually a date we should settle on but i like it as a nice bookmark period um now my choice in hellenistic period was is a bit unusual because I've always been mainly an ancient Rome person. Uh the, the the hellenistic powers were always this like kind of peripheral uh entity when compared to Rome and I'm like oh that's interesting you know like a Greek ruler in Egypt or you know I barely knew of the Seleucids even like even less and I thought this might be a good opportunity for me to learn and that I never, I didn't really. At the time, there was not many, just many podcasts talking about the uh, Hellenistic period, uh, besides like kind of the, the bookends where you talk about either the wars of the successors or you talk about uh, Cleopatra, and that's kind of it. Everything in between was seemed so uh interesting and so like uh unexplored that I thought this might be a great way to. Uh, for me to learn and also for me to help others learn who don't know where to begin. And so I kind of like to style my show as, you know, as a great launching platform for other people to find more works about relatively untapped subjects. And originally my intent was just to kind of cover the main three or the big three, I call them uh, the Seleucids, the Antigonids and the Ptolemies. But as I've gone on, I've sort of expanded my scope to kind of covering almost every culture in between, uh, you know, the, the shores of Spain and India, in between 323 and. 30 BC so it's my my the task I've created for myself has just grown has uh, exponentially increased <laughs> when I was expecting but I think that the Hellenistic period has a lot of people that are interested and I think that's something that I'm really happy to see where I find I get a lot of comments saying I've been trying to look for stuff on this material I didn't know where to go but thank you so much and I think those are the like, I appreciate those comments the most because I barely knew anything about them and I feel that being able to Give people the opportunity to learn about them as well, especially given how interesting the period is. I believe uh, I, it's really, really uh, satisfying to see that kind of my, the response, and I'm, I'm happy that people are taking a little interest in my rinky-dink show.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with me today and teaching everybody a bit more about uh, this really, really fascinating time period. You're totally right that it's um, it's so much more interesting than the kind of tension that it's given, and I think it's important just to learn more and more about all these different time periods and to see the, the extent of ancient history that we can find out is just absolutely fascinating. So um, I encourage everybody to check out uh, Hellenistic Age podcast. I think it's a really fantastic show and I think you do a great job uh, illuminating uh, another corner of history.
1: Thank you very much. And uh, thank you for inviting me to show. And uh, I hope everybody can kind of uh, happy to join us. And uh, we're still on still about a third of the way through. So we still have quite a journey to go to. So I hope you join us soon.
0: Thank you for listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. You can learn more about the Hellenistic age with Derek's podcast at hellenisticagepodcast.wordpress.com or follow him on Twitter at twitter.com slash Pod. Also, please remember to get your tickets for this year's symposium. Watch live our fantastic lineup of professors, authors, and philosophers and join in the conversation. We'll be hosting Victor Davis Hanson, Angie Hobbs, Michael Fontaine, A.A. Long, and Stephen Dando Collins, just to name a few more. Go to classicalwisdom.com slash symposium for more information on how to get your tickets.